All right, I want to do a couple of different things this quarter. I think I mentioned that uh, last week. We're going to take a look for a couple of weeks, maybe three, uh, on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then I'll spend the rest of my time doing the book of Philippians. So today, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me begin by reading to you from the Constitution of our church. We believe that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead, being of the same substance, fully equal in perfection, attributes, and deity, yet they are distinct from one another and unique as to role and office. So that's where we stand as Timberlake Baptist Church, And if I go off base, you can raise your hand and get me back on track, all right? But that's what we want to look at, the scriptures that would support this statement. Well, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit throughout church history has been both underemphasized and overemphasized. And uh, we want to take a look at two of those extremes just real quickly, kind of get a baseline One extreme is, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're going to deny his deity, and they tend to call him simply a force from God or a power from God. Now, of course, they deny the entire concept of the Trinity. They believe that the Son was a created being, and they don't even grant personhood to the Spirit, calling him some abstract power or Uh, the idea of a force coming from God. They've got some verses that they use. It was interesting. I spent some time just looking up these because I don't know a whole lot about the Jehovah's Witnesses besides the obvious, but I was kind of interested in the verses that they might use. They tend to take advantage of uh, what we sometimes do uh, here in terms of naming. Uh, For instance, in the scriptures, Paul will often put after his name, comma, and apostle. That's a renaming, right? He's just renaming himself. Uh, We could say, Ed, the teacher, all right? It's just a renaming. To the Jehovah's Witness, that's what the scriptures have done with the Holy Spirit. He's not a person. It's just a renaming of a force or a power. This is not going to advance. Let's take a look at a couple of Old Testament references that I saw as I looked these up. And they're just, to them, it's a repetition. But as for me, I am filled with power. All right, there's the key. I'm filled with power. Now, let's rename that power. It's the Spirit of the Lord. So there's only one God, the Father, and the Spirit is just a renaming of a power that emanates from the Father. Same thing is true in the New Testament, Luke one thirty-five. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, comma, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So again, just a renaming. He's just a power or a force that comes from the Father. 
Now, of course, the other extreme would be the modern Pentecostal movement. And that is a group that emphasizes the baptism of the Spirit. But as a second blessing, you've probably heard that mentioned sometimes, a second work of grace in order to endue the believer with power. And it promotes a return to all of the miracles and uh, the gifts that were present in the New Testament. Uh, Now, they tend to key in on the book of Acts. And I'm going to be coming back to this later in this series. And I want to unfold a little bit deeper uh, what you want to do when you're studying the book of Acts. You can really get off base in a hurry if you're not careful. But uh, they will look... I'm going to have to manually advance. But uh, they would look at passages like in uh, Acts chapter 8, and I've prefaced the verses. Luke reports in Acts 8 that many believed Philip, this is up in Samaria, and were baptized as he preached in Samaria. Then, okay, notice he's preached, they believed, they were baptized. Now, from the scripture, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had not fallen on any of them. So here's a group of believers. They were saved. They went through water baptism. But to the Pentecostal, they have yet to receive the Holy Spirit. And that happened only when the apostles came down from Jerusalem. So it's, it's verses like that scattered through the book of Acts. As I said, we'll do more with that later. But that gives you some idea of where they're coming from. Uh, I've also got something, it's called a position paper. And this is from the Assemblies of God, who would be a Pentecostal group. And uh, I think this will help you see where they're coming from. Uh, This is called a position paper on the baptism in the Holy Spirit by the General Presbytery of the Assemblies of God. It's a five-point statement. Number one, it's experientially distinguishable from and subsequent to the new birth. So for them, it's definitely a separate event. It's distinguishable, that means there are two events, and it's subsequent. So this is something that happens after a person is saved. Number two, It's accompanied by speaking in tongues. That's the outward sign that a person has been baptized in the Spirit. They will speak in tongues. Three, it is distinct in purpose from the Spirit's work of regenerating the heart and life of a repentant sinner. So it has a completely different purpose. Four, at conversion, the Spirit does baptize, but only in the sense of joining a believer to the body of Christ. Then, in a subsequent and distinct experience, Christ will then baptize in the Holy Spirit. So you can see that that is completely counter to a position that we would hold here. And as I said, we will go back to this uh, at a point in the series and take a look at Acts and take a look at exactly what's going on there. Probably the most important thing for us to know about the Holy Spirit is this. He does not elevate himself. 
But instead, he points people to Christ, and he always seeks to glorify him. Uh, Turn with me over to the book of John. John chapter 16. John 16 and verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you can see from those two verses in John that the Holy Spirit always points men to Christ. He never points and says, hey, look at me, I'm here. It's always a deflection onto the Lord Jesus. So it's important to understand uh, this truth in light of the fact that with many so-called Christian groups today, there's definitely uh, a distortion. Let me share with you some uh, ideas from some various authors regarding this idea of deflecting and emphasizing Christ. This is from David Lloyd-Jones. You probably heard that name. The Spirit does not glorify himself. He glorifies the Son. This is, to me, one of the most amazing and remarkable things about the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to hide himself and to conceal himself. He is always, as it were, putting the focus on the Son. And that is why I believe, and I believe profoundly, that the best test of all as to whether we have received the Spirit is to ask ourselves, what do we think of and what do we know about the Son? Did you catch that? The test for having the Spirit is what we think of the Son. Is the Son real to us? That's the work of the Spirit. He's glorified indirectly. He's always pointing us to the Son. And you see how easily we go astray and become heretical if we concentrate overmuch and in an unscriptural manner upon the Spirit himself. Yes, we must realize that he dwells within us, but his work in dwelling within us is to glorify the Son and to bring us that blessed knowledge of the Son and his wondrous love for us. It is he who strengthens us with might in the inner man. But for what purpose? That we may know this love, the love of Christ. That was Lloyd-Jones. This is from Chuck Swindoll. You've probably heard that name as well. We may not be in his camp on every point, but he's got a good one here. Swindoll says, mark it down. The Spirit glorifies Christ. I'll go one step further. If the Holy Spirit himself is being emphasized and magnified, he isn't in it. Christ is the one who is glorified when the Spirit is at work. He does his work behind the scenes, never in the limelight. When spiritual gifts, miraculous power, or promises of health and wealth are put front and center, the focus is directed away from Jesus Christ. This kind of diversion is not the Holy Spirit's doing.
And then finally, a pastor named Dan Phillips. I'm not familiar with him. Show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit and his gifts, and I'll show you a person not filled with the Holy Spirit. Show me a person focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ, never tiring of learning about him, thinking about him, boasting of him, speaking about and for and to him, thrilled and entranced with his perfections and beauties, finding ways to serve and exalt him, tirelessly exploring ways to spend and be spent for him, growing in character to be more and more like him, and I will show you a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes? Is there a hierarchy there? Is there a hierarchy? They, there, there is a unity. There is no distinction as far as one being more deity than another. They do have specific roles, though. The spirit defers to and the spirit, well, I like deflects, but I can, I can see that word in a sense. The spirit does not take a forefront position ever. His mission in our hearts is to direct us to the second person of the Trinity. So they all have distinctive roles, but they're all equally God. One author has said, spiritual power and sanctification are the work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is that work by which he shows us Christ in his word and then progressively molds us into that same image. Therefore, No subject is of greater importance to the child of God than that of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't want the praise, but it's certainly incumbent upon us to study about him, to know him, because he is deity. All right, if you take a look at your outline, what we'll do now is start going through these points. And the first thing that we're going to do is take a look at the Holy Spirit as a person. And one of the ways that we know that he is a person and not just a force of God is that there are personal pronouns used when the scriptures are talking about him. Let's take a look at John fourteen seventeen. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. There's your pronouns. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We also find uh, in John uh, 16, 13 and 14, we were there. Turn there again, though, if you would. John 16, 13, and 14. This time I'm using it to emphasize the pronoun usage. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. (coughs) Notice five times there in that one verse, the use of a pronoun rather than just repeating the noun Holy Spirit again and again and again. Of course, we do that in English language all the time, using a pronoun to represent a person. 
Now, don't freak out, but we're going to do a little bit of Greek. We're going to do just two points. That's all, okay? So stay with me, and I'm going to make it very simple, but it is quite instructive. In the Greek, there's a word for spirit. It's pneuma. And interestingly, that word is translated at least four different ways in the scripture. It's sometimes translated a spirit, little s, like the spirit of a man, okay? It's sometimes translated spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. It's sometimes uh, interpreted as wind or breath. But here's the point. The noun is neuter. The Greek has three genders, male, female, and neuter, okay? The word spirit itself, which I said can be translated different ways, is a neuter word. And so if you're going to replace a noun with a pronoun, it's typical to replace it with the same gender. That would be obvious, okay? I wouldn't talk about... Becky is my wife. He has been a good one, okay? That doesn't make much sense. You keep the same gender. But we find in the Greek with these chapters, John 14 and 16, that the pronoun used is male. And again, don't worry about the Greek words, but it is interesting to see the the ending is what's different. Altos is the masculine pronoun, he. Alte is the feminine and alta is the neuter. Well, in scripture, it's altas. The male pronoun is used with the neuter noun to emphasize that indeed the Holy Spirit is a person. All right, did that bog you down too much? That was pretty simple, wasn't it? Okay, we have one more thing, and that'll be it. In the same vein, we find in the scripture... The idea of another. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Greek has two words for another, not just one. You can have the idea of another of the same kind, alas. You can also have another of a different kind, the word heteros. You may recognize that. Heterosexual, okay? Different sexes, all right? Hetero, heteros for a different kind. What's being used in John chapter 14 in that reference? It's the alas. I will send you a helper of the same kind. In other words, just as Christ was deity, God in the flesh, I'm going to send you another helper, and he'll be of the same kind. He will not be of a different kind. He won't be just a mysterious force where Christ was a person. They will both share that together. There's a reference over in Galatians, I think, uh, helps you see this. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, but it, uh, it talks about these two words. Uh, Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. There, the heteros was used. 
The English just uses another in both cases. But Paul says, I'm surprised that you were called from the true gospel to another one, a different gospel. And then he goes on to say, lest they be confused, which is not another. It's not another of the same kind. It's a different gospel altogether. So where in the English we don't get that distinction, sometimes the, the Greek is helpful just seeing uh, the different uh, applications that you can make with that. But that's all for the purpose of showing that he is a person, okay? The idea of uh, male pronouns and the idea of him being a helper of the same kind, both of those points. All right, then under uh, Roman numeral one and uh, point B, we can talk about the idea of attributes of personality that would show that the Holy Spirit is a person. First of all, we see that he has a mind. And the reference, which I have there for you and now is on the slide, is Romans 8.27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who's the he to start that verse? Another pronoun, but not the spirit. Who is he? Hmm? God. Yeah, God, and probably God the Father would be the best way to look at that. He, God, who searches hearts, knows, what does he know? He knows what's on the mind of the spirit. In other words, the spirit has a mind. <coughs> if God knows the spirit of men, how much better does he know the mind of the Spirit since they have been together eternally. The Father understands what the Spirit is thinking because the Spirit is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. Then we see, too, that he knows and searches the things of God. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He knows and searches those deep things. It's interesting. It almost makes you think of them as one. And of course, the Trinity is one in a great sense, even though it's three distinct persons. Notice while Paul uses the counterexample with a man. Who knows the thoughts of a man better than the man himself? And so he uses that as a question to get you to think, well, who would know the mind of God better than God himself? And so he's relating that the Spirit is indeed the same as the Father in terms of being deity, part of the Trinity. Letter C there. He is able to teach men. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The writers of Scripture were directly taught by the Holy Spirit, not through any human wisdom. That's what Paul is saying. Not just the words that he speaks to the Corinthians when he's with them, but the words that he speaks that become inscripturated. Those words are coming from the Spirit, not by anything from man. And then D, he imparts wisdom and counsel. Isaiah 11.2 And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now this is Christ he's speaking of as the Him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So he has the ability to impart wisdom and counsel. Uh, This is speaking of Christ submitting himself uh, to the direction and the counsel of the Spirit, which Christ did while he was here on earth. He submitted himself to the direction of the Spirit. Can you think of an episode very early in the life of Christ in which the Spirit directed him? When he went upon the mountain where he was tempted by Satan, There you go, yeah. In fact, uh, let's turn there, Luke uh, 4. Yep, Ronnie's got it, Luke chapter 4. Christ did not just wander into the wilderness. He didn't just simply stumble into trouble with the, the devil showing up. This was all planned. Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit directed his activity, both there and throughout his life, uh, because Christ was always subject to the will of the Father, but that will was actually carried out by the Spirit's leading and by the Spirit directing the Lord. So we have this uh, notion of him imparting wisdom and counsel. And then secondly, we see here uh, the idea of emotion. Remember, we're under the heading of attributes of personality. The Holy Spirit has personality because he has intellect. And he also has personality because he has emotion. In other words, he possesses the ability to experience emotion. First of all, he can be grieved. I'm sure you know that verse. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We'll talk about sealing a little bit later on in the series, but the same one that seals believers... Paul says, make sure that you don't grieve this one. How do you think you grieve the Spirit? How do we grieve the Spirit? Sin. Sin grieves him. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, does anybody remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there's a bunch of little statements in a row, uh, pray without ceasing, 
rejoice evermore. And then it says something about something we're not to do to the Spirit of God. Grieve. Grieve. Uh, no, uh, no. Well, that's, that's the word we're using. That sounded so good, I accepted it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're basing this on. What, what does it mean to grieve him? Digging too deep, I guess. Quench. Quench, not the Spirit. That would be the way we grieve him. But you're right, it would be, quenching would be through sin. Our sin would quench the Spirit of God. That's, that's kind of interesting. I bring that up for a reason. Quench would mean, obviously, to extinguish, right? And it would normally have the idea of stifling our progressive sanctification. That's what quenching would be. It would stifle our growth by our sin. Well, sometimes Scripture pictures the presence of the Holy Spirit as a flame or a fire. And so it becomes quite appropriate to talk about quenching him with a word picture, and that would be quenching him as you would quench a fire. We're not to put the flame out. We're to uh, obey the Spirit's leading and to not grieve him. All right, uh, B, he can be outraged. Now, I don't know that every translation, I, I didn't look any of them up, for this lesson, I've, I've gone over them in the past and I don't remember. So a lot of your uh, versions may not have outraged as a word. The ESV does, and I'm taking, it, taking the verse from there. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Notice uh, uh, how strong a language the writer of Hebrews is using here. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've profaned his blood. And in doing so, what have they done to the Spirit? They have outraged him. Because remember, his job is to elevate the Lord. And now some of these are actually trampling down on him. So the writer here says the spirit can be outraged. Well, that's definitely an emotion. The Holy Spirit has emotion. That passage goes on to say, I don't have the verse up here, but it goes on to say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I thought it interesting that we some, at least I do, I don't, you can tell me if you think that way or you, you know a little bit more about this. We just tend to think of wrath and outrage with the Father. I do. I tend to, you know, if I'm not careful, I know my doctrine, but sometimes life gets in the way, and I start thinking, yeah, Jesus, you know, he's, he's, he's the good one. Holy Spirit, yeah, he's good. Oh, the Father, yeah, he, he can be tough. But that's not the case here. The Holy Spirit has the same wrath build up in him that the Father does. And we can't get the son out of the picture either. I know this isn't uh, about him today, but uh, I just thought of it. Go over to Revelation chapter 6. This will just kind of tie the whole picture together, showing that it's the triune God. What's another um, rendering of that uh, have done 
despite unto the Spirit of grace. Has done despite. What? Uh, I'm not prepared today to... to well, well, I mean, uh, uh, is it another verse, another uh, version of that verse? No. Well, you just read a different one than mine. You've got, you've got something there at the end that's different. You've got King James or New King James. Mine says insulted. I don't know if that's what. Insulted. Okay. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find three or four different things. That's why I said I I mentioned that I am using this from the ESV to get this point across about being outraged, insulted. What would your King James says does despite? Okay. Yeah. All negative terms. This one, I thought, grabbed the sense of the emotion better. But certainly all of them uh, would kind of lend themselves toward someone experiencing emotion. Uh, Revelation 6.16. Take a look at that. And let's see now who is uh, outraged or who is exhibiting the wrath. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne, Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is outraged. The Father is outraged. And the Holy Spirit is outraged anytime a person is guilty of trampling underfoot the Son of God and profaning profaning that blood so the holy spirit is part of the trinity and they can be outraged next point there he experiences joy first thessalonians 1 6 and you became imitators of us and of the lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not just joy produced in you by the Holy Spirit, but His joy. You receive the Word, and when the Word is received, and He opens hearts that you might receive it to begin with, when you receive the Word, then He experiences joy. The Holy Spirit definitely has emotion. He has joy. Then we also find that he loves. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, you, you, you don't want to slice too much apart from the three persons, okay? But definitely here, that God's love has been poured into our hearts and the mechanism is through the third person of the Trinity. It's through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, and then uh, thirdly, under this concept of attributes of personality, we find that the Holy Spirit has a will. He has a volition. He possesses the ability to act or, de- or determine or act decisively. Letter A, he distributes spiritual gifts to believers. 
Okay. <clears throat> he has the ability to determine or act. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So these spiritual gifts, which we'll get into a little bit later, these gifts are distributed by someone's will or determination. And it's the determination of the spirit who acts in giving spiritual gifts. These are sovereignly and supernaturally bestowed by the Holy Spirit on believers. And it enables them to spiritually edify and effectively honor the Lord. The gifts, though, are for what purpose? Not for his benefit, per se. These gifts make Christ known, understood, and evident in the church and the world by spiritually profiting all who benefit or receive their ministry. He distributes spiritual gifts to believers. He also directs the activities of God's servants. There's a couple of references. <clears throat> First, Acts 13, 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this is the church at Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It says here that the Holy Spirit directed that first missionary trip. In a sense, the church did not choose them. In a sense, they did not volunteer themselves. They were directed through the church by the Spirit to perform this missionary task. Now, before I get the question, I have no idea. How did the Holy Spirit communicate to them that day? I do not know. But here's an idea. Perhaps he spoke to them through one of the prophets there. Okay? We are going to find as we get into the book of Acts that there's things, there are real prophets during those days. Okay, They're not gone yet. And there were seven of these men that were specially gifted of the Lord <coughs> at Antioch, not just, Paul, not just Saul and Barnabas. And it may be that the Lord directly spoke to one of them. I do not know. All I can tell you is what the scripture says. The Holy Spirit said so. In some way, he communicated to the church leadership. Notice he didn't speak to Barnabas and Saul. He said, separate for me these two for the work to which I have called them. And then also in Acts 16, 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is the second missionary trip. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. He directed their activities. He directed them literally in what direction to go. They were going to move west, straight west, right into the big province of Asia, where those seven churches of Revelation are, and where there is a high concentration, population, great ministry opportunity, and that's where Paul was headed. And the Holy Spirit said, no, not going to go that way. He turned them north, and after a while, west. And where did they end up? On the coast 
And there, what did they receive in a vision? Come over to Macedonia and help us. They received a call that opened the door to all the ministry in Europe. The Holy Spirit directed them away from Asia at this point. Now, Paul had a lengthy ministry in Asia eventually. But at this time, he directed them north, then west. Avoid Asia. And for what purpose? That he might open the gospel up to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. I mean, wow. Some of the things that we've taught and talked about in here. So the Holy Spirit was in charge of the apostles and uh, what they chose to do. All right, then letter C. This is the last part of showing that he is a person. And I, I understand, this, this is the choir that I'm preaching to. You, you know this, but I was talking to a group just this past Wednesday night. It was a completely different subject. But I was talking about uh, the work of Christ. And I said to them almost apologetically, you know, I know you folks know this, but then I quoted them what Peter said. I'm going to keep telling you this over and over again as long as I'm in the body. You need the repetition. And so I won't apologize. I'll simply say that all of us need refreshing from time to time. Uh, that's the way the scripture is. You know, Paul told the church at Philippi three times in a four-chapter book, rejoice. Jesus told the disciples five times in the upper room, love one another. He just kept hammering and hammering it. And so I do recognize that much of this you're familiar with and you understand and appreciate it. But I hope that it'll be a blessing just going back over it uh, again and again. All right, so now we're taking a look at actions of personality. Point C. All right, I don't think we're reading this first one. All right, uh, back to John fourteen twenty six. John fourteen twenty six. And you can see on your outline, one of the reasons he we know he has personality is that he is able to teach. 1426. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You've probably heard it said that the Spirit is the believer's resident teacher. He's in you and he's there to teach you. How does he do it? I don't know all the ins and outs, the mysteries of God, but it's through illumination. He makes the scriptures alive. He gives light to them, and he allows our minds to understand and take it in. He's the one who grants the knowledge of God that's going to eventually lead us to spiritual maturity. So he is able to teach us. <clears throat> Turn over to Romans 8, if you would. Romans 8, we find there that he guides. Now, some of this has a little bit of overlap. We just talked about the fact that he directs the activities. But uh, this is more of a general life direction. He guides believers. 
Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's just the truth of a believer. Believers are led by the Spirit. Unbelievers are led by their flesh. A true child of God has a life that's characterized by being led by the Spirit. Again, what does this lead? How's this entail? It entails mainly his illumination of the Scriptures. I mean, that's our guide, right? As far as print, what's in front of us. The Holy Spirit is not speaking to you, all right? Not audibly. He does not need to. He has left you a completed word. And so he illumines that word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I want to cover two other things, and it'll get us at a logical point. He commands and directs. This is actually the end, almost the end of the story. I'll give you a little background. I think you remember it, though. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. He commands people, and he directs them exactly what to do. You're to go over and join this chariot. This is an interesting story. One of the reasons is Philip was enjoying a very fruitful ministry in Samaria. People were being saved left and right. And yet, out of that fruitful ministry, the Spirit told Philip, leave Samaria. Go into the desert. And I've arranged that you're going to meet up with one guy. And, of course, in the providence of God, we already have this Ethiopian eunuch leaving Jerusalem, going down south through the desert. He's reading Isaiah wondering who in the world is this prophet talking about that he was slain for us, that he gave his life for us. And here Philip intersects with this Ethiopian eunuch. And the spirit says, now go over and join him in his chariot. And the eunuch was able to say, what is this I'm reading? And Philip was able to preach to him, see him saved, baptized him, And then it says, miraculously, the spirit whisked Philip away. And he was found moments later, 25 miles away in Azotus. What a story. But this is the culmination of it. Go join this chariot. He commands and he directs. Then one final thing uh, today. He intercedes for the believer. This is a precious verse, and I know you know this one well. Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, there's that pronoun again, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The stated reason why we need help is because of our weakness or our infirmity. Okay, And the idea is in the singular. We have lots of weaknesses. We have lots of infirmities. But Paul's getting here to the idea, it's your entire humanness. You're a weak vessel. And the Spirit is able to help us in our weakness, not weaknesses. The way the Spirit helps meet our need, it's described by the word 
helps. That idea is to put one's hand to the work and cooperate with another. That's how he helps. He puts his hand to the work and he cooperates with us. We pray, but the Spirit takes those prayers and presents them to the Father. And he has groanings too deep for words. Don't know exactly what that means, but somehow he communicates to the Father in a way that's just beyond human comprehension. And that's one of the great blessings of the Spirit, is that he intercedes for us. Okay, I think uh, we'll have to call that quits for the day. So keep the outline. If you happen to forget it next week, I have more that I have run off, and I'll get you one. But uh, hang on to that, and we'll uh, study some more about the Holy Spirit next week. Any quick comments? I don't don't have a whole lot of time, but anything, uh, Ed? I'd like to remind her that in Philippians, Jesus set aside his deity. Mm. Then how did he do what he did? Well, he had the Holy Spirit. And that's how he got through his life as a man, mm. because although he didn't take on his, use his deity, the Holy Spirit was there to do what he needed to get done. Yeah. And, um, and that's how we're to live our lives. Good, yeah. That's a good illustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, let's pray then. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for uh, this opportunity to be back up teaching. Thank you for the weeks we had with Ed and our study in First Peter. And now as we turn our attention here to uh, your Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, I pray that it will be a blessing as we just uh, review Uh, These believers know well the role of the Spirit, but uh, we need those reminders. And I pray that uh, uh, the weeks, whatever it takes me, three or so, that uh, we will gain much from it. Pray for the service to come. Pray for Pastor Farrelly. He has a very busy day. He's already spoken once, ready to preach again. He has the message tonight as well. So I pray for his strength. As he always prays, I pray for clarity and understanding of the scriptures as he opens them. I thank you for our group here. Bless those not with us. Strengthen them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.